So I, I used to get butterflies playing basketball. I used to get butterflies, um, you know, right before a basketball game. I used to get butterflies right before. I was getting ready to tee off at the beginning of a golf match. You know, like, have you ever watched any kind of golf major tournament, and, which is not where I played? And, uh, like, the first tee is always jam-packed with people. They usually have seats there and stands there. Well, on, like, a microscopic level, like, high school golf was kind of the same way. You get up, and you're getting ready to tee off, and, like, everybody is watching, and it can, like, make or break a round. And so many times, I would just feel that pressure, and your swing speed goes up, like, a thousand notches, because you're just so pumped up, and you hook it into the woods or duff it into the grass. I used to get the butterflies there, and, and you know, now I get the opportunity to get butterflies before I stand up and preach. And I think why is because even what we said in that last song, God, worthy is the lamb. And when you're standing on this platform, and I, I call it a platform and not a stage for a reason, there's just a weight, because I'm making the really bold assumption that, you know, you guys are listening, and, and with that assumption, I'm like, man, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to say anything or add value or to, to, to think that the words that might be said can help your trajectory either in a positive or negative way in your relationship with Jesus. God, I'm not worthy. I'm messed up, but worthy is the lamb who was slain, and that's what I'm celebrating today. I hope that's what we can celebrate today. I want to ask you a question this morning at the risk of offending you. Like, I'm okay. I'm not afraid to offend you. But especially, you're probably not ready to hear this question from a pastor. So I need to know, are all of you ready? <laughs> all right, on the count of three, if you're ready, I want you to say ready. One, two, three. Ready. Okay. Thank you. Man. Hey, if you're online and you're ready... Type in ready as loudly as you can, whatever that looks like. Here's my question. Do you ever feel like Christianity isn't working? Yeah. Hmm. You probably didn't expect to hear that from a pastor. Do you ever feel like the way that you're serving and trying to trust in Jesus isn't going how you want it to? And if I can be honest, if we can be honest with ourselves, maybe even just the busyness of our lives, the busyness of work, the busyness of sports, the busyness of extracurriculars, maybe even the busyness of church, we're just feeling a little burned out sometimes. Maybe, maybe you've said, God, why aren't you answering, why aren't you answering my prayers the way that you're answering their prayers. I know I've said that. Or you might say something like, I'm doing everything right, I'm going to church, God, I'm, I'm trying to be faithful, I'm trying to be good, and I'm doing everything right, yet everything still seems like it's just going wrong. Do you ever feel like Christianity isn't working? Uh, let me add a story to this. Let's say there's a young boy who grows up going to church and he goes to VBS and he's drawing pictures of David defeating Goliath and then he gets into the youth group and he has his first kiss in the back of the church bus playing truth or dare, dare and you know, French kiss, thank you Jesus, right? Like he's pumped, 
Things are going great. He goes to church camp. He's growing in his relationship with Jesus. And then he gets home. And what he sees at home doesn't match everything he's learned at church. The hypocrisy, the sin, the fighting. And so he gets on his hands and knees because he's learned that that's a good posture to take before our Lord. And he says, God, save my parents' marriage. And a few months later, they're divorced. Now, maybe you can resonate with a story like that, but I don't think these stories are exclusive to those who follow Jesus, right? I think there's stories like this, and we, we generate responses from these stories, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian. So let me, let me frame it a different way. In a non-Christian context, let's say a, a couple does everything the right way, that they're dating and they're waiting to get married before they're mating, right? Like trajectory, we're on the right path. And a couple years later, the husband loses his job. That's tough, what do you do? And a couple years after that, they together lose their child. And what, and what I think this, this couple and what I think this boy have in common is that I think that they come to the same assumption regardless of their background where they say, I can't do this anymore. I can't handle this anymore. I just want something to go right. And they both say and they both proclaim, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. If you're taking notes this morning, the title of today's sermon is Worship is a Way. Worship is a Way. And I want us to dig into this idea. You see, so far, Pastor Alex has talked about three things, expectation, adoration, and transformation. And today, we're going to be talking about deputation. Okay, and within this idea of deputation, we're gonna be looking at Psalm 119, but before we dig into it, let me give you a little bit of background on Psalm 119. First of all, Psalm 119 is the largest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses of 22 different stanzas. So each stanza is eight verses, and so for the first half of my sermon, I've got 22 different readers that are gonna come up, and no, we're, we're not gonna read the whole thing. Um, but it's broken up into 22 different stanzas because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and so it's, it's an acrostic poem is what it is. Um, and that's what the writer, that's the writer's chosen form of worship in this way. And so he writes out these 22 stanzas. And, but you know, my favorite fast fact about Psalm 119 isn't any of that, which that's really cool. That's very intentional. My favorite fact is that Almost every verse, not, yes, every stanza, yes, every stanza, but almost every single verse in the 176 verses in Psalm 119 says something about God's decrees, God's ways, God's direction, God's path, God, your understanding. It has something to do about the direction for your life as God would intend it. And we're gonna read a couple of the stanzas and you're gonna hear that, but almost Every single verse has something to do about God's way. And I want you to listen for it, okay? We're only gonna read stanza one and stanza four. So that's verses one through eight and verses 25 through 32. So you can follow along on the screen, but I'm, I wanna invite you to follow along uh, a little more loudly than you maybe usually do. 
Anytime that the word way or ways shows up in the text and on the screen, so I'm going to be testing our slide people so they can, because if you're quiet when it says it, I'll just assume you didn't see it up there. So I want you to shout the word ways or way, okay, every time that we get to it. If you're online, same thing, type as loud as you can the word way. Like I want to go back and see like 400 ways typed in the chat, okay? But I want you to, I want you to engage, I want you to listen, I want you to be loud every time you hear the word way. So let's read Psalm 119 together, starting in verse one. Here we go. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless. Man, you guys are good. Who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Okay, let me hit pause before we go to stanza four. So far, things are looking pretty optimistic for the writer, that they kind of have a clear head, they've got a clear mind. They understand, man, blessed is the person who, whose ways are, are following the ways of Jesus, right? Are following the ways of the Lord. They, you can hear that, you can see that. Things are going good. Let's go to stanza four. I am laid low in the dust. Okay, so not so good. Preserve my life according to your word. I gave an account of my ways and you answered me. Teach me your decrees. Cause me to understand the way of your precepts that I may meditate on your wonderful deeds. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways be gracious to me and teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding. Now, the truth of this message is clear, and I, I hope the truth of this message is obvious. And I'm, spoiler, I'm just gonna say it right now. There is no better way than the way that God wants us to go. There's no better way than the way of Jesus. You know, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. There is no better way than going the way that God is inviting us to go. And some of you maybe just like need to hit pause right there and say, yeah, yeah, I, I, I need a reminder. There's, there's no better way, there's no other way except following the way that God wants us to go. But that's not where we're gonna end up at the end of this message necessarily. I want us to look at a specific way as those who maybe proclaim to follow Jesus. Oh, I think there's a specific area in our life that we, we need to pay attention in the way that we're going. Because to be honest, it's not always that easy. It's not as easy as just waking up and, on Sunday morning and say, all right, gonna follow the way Jesus wants me to go and we go to church because you know we, we could maybe make this drive blindfolded right because we've come here so many times but I think there's something more and I don't always think it's that easy for example uh, so when I was 23 I had the opportunity to preach at my first funeral this was when I was an effort of Pennsylvania and uh, the lead pastor there would just like there would always be 
dozens of opportunities because we didn't have as much staff as we do here at Westchester. There was only three pastors on staff, um, even though the church was about the same size. And so we were always struggling for these opportunities to fill the gaps. Um, and so I had a I'll call them opportunities, right, to be optimistic. And one of these opportunities was preaching at a funeral, and it was a family who wasn't connected to our church, or some like weird like West Virginia third cousin thing or something like that, you know. And so they were like, oh, I wanna have my, you know, service at Grace Point Nazarene. And so we had our service, and I started preparing. I started taking notes, man. I started reading scripture. I started studying stories. Like, I was like so pumped up. You know, I had the butterflies, right? So I was so excited to do this sermon because there are a few opportunities, ministering opportunities, like there is in a funeral because people just seem to be engaged in a whole nother level as they reflect on someone's life. And so I was like, man, this is great. This is great. Well, I sit down with the family and I start to listen and absorb what the last 72 hours have been like for them, and I quickly realize that I am not prepared for this, that I am not qualified for this. Um, the people I met with, I met with a mother of the son who passed away. I met with the girlfriend and their two kids who were one and three. And as I began to hear the story of this 27-year-old young man who died, I heard about his time in and out of jail. I heard about his time uh, just fully involved in drugs. I heard about he lost his license and so his girlfriend and him got in a fight and, and after that fight he took her keys, stole the car, zoomed off and crashed somewhere on the winding roads of Effort of Pennsylvania and is believed he died on impact. But the worst part of it all is that according to the family, and you don't hear a lot of families say this, he didn't know Jesus. That is still the only funeral to this day that I have ever been to of someone who did not know Jesus. And I was leading it. And everything that I felt like I had prepared and ready to say, I, I didn't know how to articulate. It almost felt like it didn't connect because I didn't calculate that the possibility that they might not know God. And so I just instantly felt like I don't know what I'm doing because funerals are hard regardless, right? There is an earthly loss involved in every funeral that takes place. And I know maybe every one of you can relate to that statement. You know, one of the things, we kind of make fun of Pastor Dale, but in this, you know, uh, fun kind of way, like if we're in staff meeting and we have the unfortunate news of, you know, so-and-so passed away today, but they knew Jesus, you know, Dale, like in this awkward but slightly appropriate way, like instantly just takes both hands and is like, thank you, Jesus, and we all kind of look at him like, dude, someone died, and he's like, they crossed the finish line, and so, because there's an optimism that they are spending eternity with Jesus, but what do you do when that's not the case. And so as I'm meeting with this, this family and they're talking to me, they're trying to articulate in words the weight and the gravity of what they are feeling. And the mom is trying to speak. She can't get her words out. And you can see her body, you can see her grief, you can see her, her tension. But her body language told me everything that I needed to know of what she was trying to say. I wish my son had gone a different way. I wish my son knew that there was a better way. 23-year-old me speaking to a room full of people who are mourning the loss of someone who chose a different way. So how does this relate 
to worship. If worship is only corporate, meaning if worship is only in this space, if worship is to confined to this hour and to the songs that we've seen, then we will never help the world around us see that there is a better way. And there is a better way. We will never help those around us see that there is another way to their drinking problem that they keep turning to. There's, there's another way to their pornography addiction. There's another way to their gambling their savings account out. There's another way to the abuse towards their spouse and kids, that there is another way toward their grief, toward their anxiety, toward their stress, toward their busyness, that there is another way other than the way that we are doing it. And the only way that we can unlock that, the only way we can realize that and help people recognize that and experience that is if we don't make worship about this moment, but we make worship a way. Worship isn't a moment, worship is a way. Zach Neitz writes this really good book called How to Worship a King. Um, you might not know this. Nina Davis is interning with us. She's our youth worship intern, and I'm making her read this as a part of that. So we've been kind of journeying through this together. And one of the things that Zach Neese says in that book is he says that the term worship actually compresses the old English term of worship together. And what he, he explains what this means, because worship, which is kind of like a difficult to say, literally means to give something worth, to demonstratively give value to something. But there's a problem when we give value to something. When we give value to something, then that means there's a cost. And, and if we look at this idea of worship and worship in the Bible and giving something value, in the Old Testament, you'll see in Hebrew, the word worship and sacrifice are often interchangeable and synonymous. And the first time this shows up is actually in Genesis 22. But Paul knew this really well also because Paul, who knew the Old Testament, knew the interchangeable language between sacrifice and worship because there's a cost to our worship. That's why he says Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, do not offer your, or to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Why? This is your true and proper worship. So he connects the two, but listen to this story in Genesis chapter 22, because this is the first time that the word worship shows up in the Bible. And it might not be the story you think. Abraham is taking his son Isaac up the mountain. And he's getting ready to sacrifice his son because he believes obedience in the way of, of God is the way. And this is what God has told him to do. And so he goes up to sacrifice his son. And it says this in Genesis 22, 5. Abraham told his servants, stay here with the donkey. The boy, not, the boy and I will go over there and worship and then return to you. But what he was going to do is to go and to sacrifice his son. Now, if you know the story or if you don't know the story... You know that God, when they get up there, and Abraham clearly shows his obedience to do what God has called him to do, provides a ram, and they sacrifice that as their way of worship. But there's a cost to worship. There's a sacrifice involved. But here's the connection that I, I really would like you to make, and it's something that I didn't know until I studied it. One of my favorite things about the Christian narrative, because I, I don't know how much of the Bible that you've read, but if you've read enough of it, then maybe you've recognized that within the overarching story of God, every story in some way points to the climax of our faith 
which is Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Every story, and this story is no different. And in light of thinking about that, what we have is we have Abraham, and the first time that worship is mentioned in the Bible, Abraham, in obedience, going to sacrifice his son. Fast forward to the climax of our faith. But instead, we worship the one who sent his one and only son, sacrificed himself on the cross. So let that sink in. I love that connection. But that's not the only reason I think the crucifixion is, is worth our worship and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is worth our worship. There's something else that I wanna focus in on within that climax of the story, and it has to do with the holy of holies. Now, that might be a new term for you. That might be something like what, what, the holy of holies. This is some Old Testament language. So there was this thing called a tabernacle. Does anybody, who knows what the tabernacle was? Who's heard of that before? I'm not gonna call on you. You can raise your hand, okay. Yeah, the tabernacle was like basically like this portable worship space and they would, wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, which is uh, where it said that God's presence was, like if you drop the Ark of the Covenant, like you would die because like that's how powerful God's presence is. So if you're new to church, welcome to church. It's really great. So it, it's, so they had this portable worship space and the Ark of the Covenant would be in this room called the Holy of Holies. So there was the outer space, which is where they would sacrifice things, that's worship. Uh, there was this inner room, and then there was the back room, and this back room was the Holy of Holies. And there was a veil between the first room and the Holy of Holies. And only the priest, after they had done their ceremonial cleaning and getting ready and prepping, and assuming that they were righteous and holy enough, only the priest could actually go into the Holy of Holies. But if you weren't holy enough, it is said that you would die in that room because you can't handle God's presence because of how powerful it is. So they would actually tie a rope around the priest's ankle, like just in case, like, hey, in case you don't you know, make it out, you know. Uh, they would tie a rope, so that way no one would have to go in that room in order, you know, because then they would all die too, right? You know, so they tie a rope around the priest in case he dies, and then they could drag him back out. But, but in that room, the priest would worship, the priest would pray, the priest would, uh, on behalf of the people, offer requests to God. And this tabernacle, which had walls around it, like was the space of worship. And anything outside the tabernacle was said to be other and worldly. But worship would take place only in that tabernacle. Why is that important? Well, when Christ went to the cross, when he defeated death, defeated the grave, we sang it in that last song, the veil was torn. And most importantly, and primarily what that means for you and for me is that there is no longer any separation between us and our Heavenly Father, that we have full access to this relationship with Jesus, that we can come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness, that we can come to Jesus when we're most broken, when we're doing great, no matter what is going on, we can come to Jesus. There's no longer a barrier. We don't have to come at our best. We can come at our worst and he makes us our best. The veil was torn. But, but what that also means, speaking as the tabernacle as the whole, is worship is no longer limited to this space. But worship is everywhere that we go. Uh, let me say it this way. So in this series, we've been talking about 
Well, let's go to the series title. Here I am to worship. And that's been a question mark for us, right? Let me say it differently. Here I am to worship, right? That's what we've been saying. And so the last three weeks, our hope has been that you've hopefully are able to erase that question mark for you and that when you walk in, you can say, yes, God, here I am to worship. But this is a four-week series, not a three-week series. And this fourth week has to do, in light of the veil being torn, that it's not just here I am in this space, but it's wherever I am. Here I am to worship no longer has boundaries, is no longer constricted to an hour, is not just this, this space and these walls, but here I am to worship is wherever I am to worship because worship isn't a moment, worship is a way. I need you to remember that. Worship isn't a moment, worship is a way. And so the veil being torn means that we can say here I am to worship wherever we are. If you walk into a grocery store, you can say, I promise, you can, you might not want to, but you can, say, here I am to worship. And everybody else can say, here's the weirdo, right? You walk into your cubicle, you sit down, here I am to worship. You go to a football game, game-winning touchdown, scored, everybody else is cheering for different reasons, but you say, here I am to worship. You go to the DMV and you say, okay, not everything is redeemable, so maybe we just, <laughs> maybe, maybe not there. Um, no, but because of our expectation, adoration, and the transformation that takes place in our lives, that takes place here, that means deputation for us out there. So that we can say, here I am, wherever we are, because worship isn't a moment, worship is a way. You catching on? And maybe you're catching on, but I know that there's still a barrier, because you don't want to look like an idiot. <laughs> And because I love you, I don't want you to either. Because if we, if we walked into wherever we were and we said those things, you're like, Jay, that sounds great, but I, like, I wanna keep the friends that I have. And so I, you're not gonna be that bold. You're not gonna be that awkward. You're not gonna walk into everywhere you go and say, here I am to worship. But this is where Psalm 119, this is where it comes into play. I'd like to add to that thought. Worship, we've said, you know, it's not just a moment. Worship is a way, but worship's not just a song. Worship is a way of life, it's a way of living. Worship is pointing your life this way and not that way. Worship is responding this way and not that way. Worship is saying this and not that. Worship is contained in so much and in everything that you do because how you do all of this, those things shows people what you really worship. Or say it this way, how you patiently wait at the DMV shows people what you really worship. But here's my main point, and it's a bold statement. All of you are worship leaders. You're like, whoa, whoa, Jay. I can't sing. I'm not a worship leader. And it... it and to some of you, I would say, you're right, you can't sing, but neither can I. No, all of you are worship leaders. But the question is, what are you leading people to worship? 
what are you leading people to worship? Because you're pointing people somewhere. You're leading people somewhere. Your worth is somewhere. You have value somewhere in your life. But what are you leading people to worship? Because in this moment, it's obvious. To some degree, we're all on the same page. But then Monday morning happens. And do people notice the same thing? Do they know what you worship on Sunday morning on Monday morning? You're a worship leader. What are you leading people to worship? And so you might be thinking right now, okay, we haven't really dug into Psalm 119 very much. There's a lot of scripture there, and you can read through all of the stanzas and get an idea of where the author's going for. But let me just give you, here's my thought on this. I think sometimes we understand the depth of scripture by looking at the breadth of scripture. And so by looking at the scope of Psalm 119, I think we can get a clear picture of where he's going. So instead of reading through all of it again, let me just, let's go back to our beginning mark Let's have this beginning mark in mind where the two stories, both people are saying there's got to be a better way. So many people in our world are saying that right now with the things that are going on, with the circumstances that they are putting their hope and trust in, with whoever and whatever, whatever is going on, there are so many people right now that are saying, man, there's, there's gotta be a better way than how things are going right now. But this is where the story of Psalm 22 comes in because if you look through all 22 stanzas, here's what you'll find in this story. Stanza after stanza, you're gonna find someone who knows the right things, but because of personal turmoil and trouble and stress and anxiety and problem after problem after problem and circumstances out of their control, because of all of those things, what they do is they remind themselves of the truth that there is a better way, there is a better way, there is a better way, and that way is always the way of Jesus Christ. There's not, there's, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There is no better way than the way of Jesus Christ. And what you see is this person continuing, this person recalibrating themselves back and saying, I know that there is a better way. And no matter what is going on, no matter if I'm sorrowful, no matter if I'm in the pits, there is a better way. And the way that they get there is through their worship. That's what Psalm 119 is. It is a worshipful response helping them get back on track to the way that Jesus is calling them to live. So what do they remind themselves of? All the ways that Jesus, that God has shown up in their life. Remind me of your word. Help me follow your commands. I'm gonna run in the path of your laws, Jesus. Show me the way. Worship isn't a moment. Worship is a way. And you are the worship leader that somebody needs out there. Because there are so many people who are saying there's got to be a better way. And I hope you know, I don't mean to add weight to where you are, like I hope you know, you know the answer to the better way. You have the answer that they are dying to hear. You have the answer that they are longing for. There is a better way. And that's what our worship is. Not constraining it to this moment, but to taking it everywhere we go. Because here I am doesn't mean just here, it means everywhere that we go. Worship isn't a moment, worship is a way. So here's what I wanna do in our closing. We're gonna take communion together and I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. Um, but I want us to do communion in reflection and in response to um, where Psalm 119 takes us today.
You see, uh, most of the time, I mean, even since I was little, you kind of hear the same liturgy in relationship to communion. You know, take this in remembrance of me, drink this in remembrance of me, and I'm, well, Jesus said it, so that's why we do it, right? But I think so often we forget that he said, do this, live this, be this in remembrance of me, and we have made communion purely contemplative and not a commissioning, but it was meant to be both, because if I can add to it, communion isn't just a moment, but communion is a way, because it's because of the cross and the body, broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, God made a way. And so we worship Jesus in this way. Communion isn't a moment. Communion is a way. And we're supposed to embody the very thing that Jesus demonstrated to us. And so I want you to participate in communion with that in mind, that this is not just a remembrance. This is not just contemplative. But I want this to be your commissioning for today. I want this to be your commissioning for today. So go ahead and take the wafer out. And as Jesus gathered around the table, he was with his disciples the night before he was betrayed. And he breaks the bread, passes it around, and he says, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. So take and eat the bread in remembrance of Jesus. And then Jesus takes the wine and he passes it around. So this is my blood that was poured out for you. Take and drink in remembrance of me. Communion is a moment. This service is a moment, worship is a moment. This hour is a moment, you're in this building for a moment, but here's the thing, this is never intended to be a moment because worship isn't a moment, worship is a way. And you are a worship leader, and so my question for you is what are you leading people to worship because there are so many people out there right now who are saying, I wish there was a better way. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for this moment because it's moments like this that help get us back on track. It's moments like this that remind us of your ways and the direction that you want us to go and where you're taking us. Um, but God, I pray that we wouldn't hoard this moment for ourselves, that we wouldn't keep this moment to ourselves, that we wouldn't even just allow this to be a moment, but we would allow this to be a deputation of worship for us. That what we experience here, that what we learn here, that the way that we grow in our relationship with you here would send us out into the world to be a worship leader. God, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. Thank you for the truth. In you, Jesus, there is a better way.